what you are and where you are because of what's gone into your mind. You can change what you are. You can change where you are by changing what goes into your mind. You cannot become what you need to be by remaining what you are. If you can't take a huge step to begin with, take as big a step as you can, but take it now. That's the key. Take it now. You can have everything in life you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. Today's a brand new day, and it's yours. Welcome to the True Performance Show by Ziegler. Every positive pursuit in life, every progression of personal development, change is fueled by one thing, inspiration. It's the drive and the hunger that propels every good endeavor. Without it, we merely have a dream, but never actually move. With it, we can actually overcome insurmountable odds to achieve our desires, convictions, and calling. In this show, we come together to drill down into what really makes success tick and how we can apply it to our unique personal and work lives. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and right now we're going to inspire your true performance. Hi, this is Kevin Miller. Today we have episode 409 of the True Performance Show by Ziegler, where we break down the pillars of personal development and performance and deliver them to you in a way you can't help but take action on for your best success. So today, Tom Ziegler and I bring you special guest Don Yeager, a guy who calls the greatest sports legends of our time friends. He's worked side by side with them and ultimately studied the aspects that not only make the individuals dramatically successful, but even more so their teams together. The discussion today will, of course, speak to your personal success pursuits, But for those involved with a team, whether coworkers or employees or even family, you're going to learn some significant principles of what will foster true performance. Well, folks, the Ziegler family loves dogs. If you visit Ziegler HQ, you'll usually be greeted first by one of the beloved family pets. So today's show is fittingly brought to you in part by BarkBox, which is a delivery of four to six natural treats and super fun toys curated around a surprise theme each month. Every month, BarkBox paw picks the best all-natural treats and innovative toys to match a dog's unique needs, including allergies and heavy chewer preferences. You'll hear a memorable testimonial coming up in the show about this. But for a free extra month of BarkBox, visit BarkBox.com slash Ziggler. And when you subscribe to a six or 12 month plan, again, you'll get a free extra month. So about our guest, Don Yeager, before we start the interview, as an award-winning keynote speaker, business leadership coach, eight-time New York Times bestselling author, and longtime associate editor for Sports Illustrated, Don Yeager's fashioned a career as one of America's most provocative thought leaders. As a speaker, he's worked with audiences as diverse as Fortune 500 companies and cancer survivor groups, where he shares his personal story. He's primarily sought to discuss lessons on achieving greatness learned from firsthand experiences with some of the greatest sports legends in the world and of all time. Additionally, Don has been retained by companies and organizations to coach their leaders, management teams, and employees on building a culture of greatness by looking at great teams in sports and discerning the business lessons and life lessons we can learn from them. So throughout his writing career, Don has developed a reputation as a world-class storyteller and has been invited as a guest to every major talk show you can think from Oprah to Nightline, CNN, Good Morning America. Jaeger's first book was called Undue Process, The NCAA's Injustice for All. It was published in 1990, and in the 22 years since, he's penned 23 more books, including nine New York Times bestsellers. His latest and the focal point for today's show is Great Teams, 16 Things High-Performing Organizations Do Differently. It was published by Thomas Nelson, a division of HarperCollins, and was just released on July 19th, 2016. You can connect with Don at his website, donjaeger.com, and that's Y-A-E-G-E-R.com. So here then, Tom Ziegler and I bring you Don Yeager and content to help inspire and equip your true performance. Well, Don, you are privileged to have held court with an incredible number of the world's greatest athletes and sports teams, which we can see by the 
memorial of memorabilia behind you in your office. It's impressive. Uh, you're also lauded as a master storyteller. So I saw on Facebook recently on your page, which I was snooping around on, a mention about Snoop Dogg's recent throwing out the first pitch debacle and that you spent an evening with him and you have quite a story. It's all you said. So I thought a good place to start. Let's hear that story. Oh, we're going to open the Ziggler uh-huh. podcast with Snoop Dogg. That's I, strong. That's strong. That's what I that's thought. That's strong. Okay, so I, I will tell you the story, but it um, and and I will I will uh, uh, delete all Snoop Dogg language. But thank you. The uh, the the um, the story is that at the time I was working on a book uh, with the tennis star Jimmy Connors, right? And uh, Jimmy Connors w- wanted to write a biography. He had hired me to do that. I was traveling with him. And I got a phone call from him, and he said, "Hey, you know, by the way, this coming Saturday night, they're honoring me um, at uh, at Cedar Sinai Hospital with this award, and the and the awards dinner will have every A list person in Los Angeles there, along with a lot of people who are influential to me. You should come, and and I've got a seat for you at my table. So you know what? I flew to L.A., got there a little bit late, got there, got to went to the table and Jimmy's table of 10 was filled. And he says, don't worry about it. I've got you a seat over there a couple tables away. And I, I go over to my table and the table is The Rock and his wife, uh, Dwayne Johnson. It is uh, Snoop Dogg and his wife. And, and in this room of A-listers, like Snoop is the one guy that has a bodyguard behind him. And so I sit down and we're we're sitting there for a few minutes, and uh, and finally Snoop Dogg decides to begin the table conversation by saying, "Hey, you know the reason I'm here is that my wife and I had a couple of children born at Cedar Sinai. Uh, you know their amazing NICU uh, was so valuable; it it made our family. We 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 are always a supportive of the, of the hospital. Why are you here? And we and he goes around the table, and everybody tells their story, and they get to me. And I said, I'm just a sports writer, and I'm just here. I'm working on a book with Jimmy Connors, and um, and because he's being honored tonight, he invited me to be here. And Snoop looks at me and he says, Is he here yet? And I said, What do you mean? He goes, Is Jimmy Connors here yet? And I said, Yeah, that's him. A couple of tables over, and Jimmy's gotten to look a little more ragged uh, because he's old now. And uh, Snoop slaps his wife on the thigh, and he says, That's him. That's Jimmy. And he uses a f- little bit of foul language, Connors. And he said, that's one of the baddest, a little more foul language, guys on the planet. And he starts talking about Jimmy Connors' tennis career in ways that I would never <laughs> have imagined Snoop Dogg knowing. Like he knew wow. you know, U.S. Open matches, 39 years old. Here's what he did. I mean he's like telling these stories. And finally he looks at me and he goes, would you introduce me? And I said, well, of course I would. So Snoop and I and the bodyguard make our way over, two tables over. And as we're walking toward Jimmy, Jimmy's 19-year-old daughter looks up and sees me walking toward with Snoop, and she's freaking out, you know. And so Jimmy Connors looks up, and he says, hey, Don, what's up? And I said, Jimmy, I've got somebody I'd like to meet you. Uh, Jimmy, this is Snoop Dogg, to which Jimmy Connors sticks his hand out and says, pleasure to meet you, Mr. Dogg. <laughs> <laughs> he had no idea who Snoop Dogg was. His 19-year-old daughter like buried herself in her salad, you know, like I can't believe my dad just did that. And uh and it ended up in this really funny what the three of us ended up in a picture together. It just turned into this really fun evening, but the idea that Jimmy like pleasure to meet you Mr. Dog. Yeah. Like it was the greatest intro of all time. Anyway, he, he needs that so. t-shirt, I think. <laughs> that is but, that's excellent. Yeah. Pretty funny. Well, so you are, of course, with with all the accolades, and I and I told people, of course, your bio and gave an introduction on your background uh, prior to jumping in here on the interview. But you're regarded as a master storyteller, which is why I thought we'd we'd jump in with one. But we know from a marketplace standpoint, people are hungry for a story, which is hard for a guy like me, as I tend to be a, a to the point guy. I love bullet points. I could fill up an entire book, three hundred pages of bullet points. Uh, but I know well that if you truly want to engage people, you do need to tell them a story. So did you just naturally come to storytelling as a writer and it was a natural form for you, which it is for some people, or did you pursue it as a craft because you understood its power or a little of both? I think it was, I think I, I, I was a natural storyteller as a writer. I, I love, I love asking, you know, impactful questions, but more importantly, I think the thing that worked for me as a writer was understanding scene setting 
Mm-hmm. And that's where that's where people can feel like they're part of the story. If you can, if you don't just t- like you know, just the, the story we just shared, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't just tell you about. Um, I, I I set the table up for you, mm-hmm. right? I tried to I explained the bodyguard walking with us. Why? Because as I was doing that, you were probably imagining that scene, mm-hmm. and and I think that's a lost art in most storytelling. Is we'll tell you, and then Jimmy said, uh, and then and then Snoop Dogg said, I want to I want to meet Jimmy Connors, and we walked over there. Well, you know, again, you put the bodyguard in the picture, it's a different picture for people, and they. Uh, the key to all good storytelling is finding detail that can allow people to feel like they're with you in the discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did it, I thought, pretty well as a writer, which is how I ended up at Sports Illustrated. The challenge for me was learning how to do it from a stage. Um, and as Tom you know, watched his father become the master, I mean, I, I, I've watched so many Zig videos over the years trying to learn that storytelling art mm-hmm. from a stage. Uh, I've hired coaches. I've worked on it. Is it's a it's a different art form, but when done well, uh, a story told from the stage can absolutely. I mean, you can make people, you can make them cry, you can make them laugh in a five minute window, right? If you do it well. I tell you what, uh, we just had our Ziegler Speakers Institute, and we spent a full day on this one thing of how you make a story real present tense, personal in front of an audience. And you did that so well because you, I was in the scene and I could hear your introduction in my, and I was smiling, Mr. Dog, the whole thing. So many people, when they, when they tell a story, they say, Oh yeah, this happened 10 years ago and that happened and this happened. And there's no context. When you put people in the scene, it becomes emotional. It becomes real. Yeah. And and when you learn how to engage dialogue, which is a different experience as a speaker, right? As a, um, you know, to tell someone and then he's, you don't do the, and then he said, right? You actually just, you, you almost, uh, you, you become two different people. You carry the conversation on with yourself, but you do it in a way that people, they know who you're, they know who's who in the conversation, but the best ones, um, the the best speakers are able to do it in a way uh, that that is so seamless. You you honestly feel like you just experienced the event that they experienced. Well, well, so that you know, for, and for folks listening, we've got so many people involved in uh, in business, self employed, and entrepreneurs, and and corporate owners. And this is from a marketing standpoint. I, I'll tell you, this is a, this is an Achilles heel for me. Uh, I mean, this is the world I live in marketing and, and branding and promotion. And I have to work really hard to embody that, which seems to come naturally for you. It seemed to come naturally for Zig. So though I love the reality that Zig was such a student of the craft. And now I hear that from you as well, that you studied and study to be able to do this. But if we're going to connect with people, does it seem like, I don't know if it's just more prominent that we're talking about it more, but, and it's always been that way, or have we come to the, a time in the marketplace that for, in our culture, that for some reason story is even more important. Honest question. I I don't know. I think that, I think story is always, I mean, you you look, I would argue that every great leader in history from, from Jesus Christ to, uh, to, to, uh, to, 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 you know, some of the, some of the horrible leaders we've got in the world today have, have garnered their power or much of their power has come from the ability to tell stories, right? Mm-hmm. Have come from the ability, uh, of, to make people feel like they're part of something. I mean, there, are, there are men who, who jumped in airplanes and, and flew them into buildings, you know, 10 years ago or however many years ago, because they believed the story that was told to them, right? Um, you know, you, it is amazing what a great storyteller can lead other people to do for good and bad. And I think what we've started to realize is um, the storytelling is different today because of attention spans, because of all the challenges that come uh, from that. Uh, but, I w- but, but without question, uh, I think it's the, it is a dominant conversation almost everywhere I go today among businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we make ourselves better storytellers? How do we how do we not just want to learn, but then want, how do, how do we better share uh, those stories? Okay. Well, so speaking of stories, you have written a book, Great Team, 16 Things High-Performing Organizations Do Differently. You speak on 
building a culture of greatness by looking at great teams in sports and discerning the business lessons we can learn from them. Now, we do have lots of business owners represented in the Ziegler audience that will benefit directly from this. But I'm also aware, as I've gone through it, that this is uh, core principles that are relevant for all of us. Can you speak to that a bit? Sure. So... Um, as Tom knows, I actually had the blessing. Uh, Tom Tom invited me years ago to be on uh, be on the uh, the telecast that you that you all produced um, regularly one day, and I had the chance. He he graciously allowed me to have lunch with his dad, and it was an incredible day for me. And 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 for several years since I retired from Sports Illustrated, um, I have been out talking about the individual habits of high performers. And that's what I talked about that day with you, Tom, um, was I told the stories of living with Walter Payton as he was battling for his life. And I told the stories of living with, working with John Wooden. And so what are the lessons I've learned from high performers? Mm-hmm. But five years ago, an executive at Microsoft, where I speak often, said, hey, we want to know. That's great stuff. But why do some teams do what others don't? Why can some teams stay together, win together, and be sustainably successful when others rise and fall. And so I, I made that my mission everywhere I went. When I was on the road, I was sitting down with, uh, with a Mike Krzyzewski uh, at Duke, a Tom Izzo at Michigan State, a, a Robert Kraft, we were talking about him uh, as we were getting ready to get on the line here uh, from the New England Patriots, sitting down with the best team builders, whether you like him or not, but these people have built sustainably winning organizations. And what can they teach us? And, and that's the product. The product of, of that is this, this book that we're talking about here, The 16 Habits of Those High-Performing Teams. Okay. Um, and it's been, it's been an amazing journey. I've learned so much. Uh, 120 of these great team builders have given me their time, and it's been, uh, it's been a great gift. Well, you just mentioned the, your time with Ziegler, and I, I bet you're talking about the Success 2.0 show. Yes, absolutely. Yes, well, that's, awesome. Yes, it was. It was. I, I was blessed to be able to do a couple of those. Well, so in in that, you talked about having uh, time with Zig. You had lunch with Zig, and you. I saw this. You actually said, uh, which that lunch with Zig, and I think it was with uh, with Gene as well. Yes. Okay. Yep. You said that still to this day goes down as one of the highlights of my career. Michael Jordan, Joe Montana, Cal Ripken, none of them made me feel the way I did while dining with Zig. Well, that felt big to me, and I wanted to know a little bit about this. I mean, most people would pay a small fortune to spend time with Michael Jordan and Joe Montana and Cal Ripken, legends of sports, Hall of Famers, at the absolute top level. So I wanted to ask a couple things on that. First, I'm sure that there were some good feelings in the meetings with those three legends. I don't think most people can imagine what it would be like. I mean, do they do they levitate? Do they actually put their pants on the, the same? I mean, what, what were some, what was a, what's a feeling when you're, when you are with somebody who has, they perform at such a high level? You know, I, I, I think, um, the one thing I, I was blessed to have was most of that, m- many of these relationships kind of began after I was already at Sports Illustrated. And, okay. and so for, for many of them, the relationship was, um, I, you don't even want to say this because it sounds wrong, but it, but it's, but it, but there's a truism to it. It was somewhat peer to peer, right? There mm-hmm. was, I wasn't there in some kind of a, um, a worshipful environment, you know. Oh my gosh, I'm hanging out with Michael Jordan. Much as I enjoy Michael, and much as I enjoyed his his work, I was there because we were we were peer to peer. I was there to ask him questions. He was there to answer them, or I was there to to learn from him, or to to grow with him, um, and so. Uh, it was it was powerful in that I think if you don't act overly, um, uh, if if you don't slobber right when you're with them, uh, how many of these people just absolutely appreciate that relationship and they want to talk about something other than the challenge. I've, I've been at a lot of dinners where there where people walk up to them and say, "Oh my gosh, that shot you hit in the 1996." You know NBA Finals. Uh, I will never forget where. I, and they'll tell some story. They don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about their kids. They want to talk about their teammates. They want to talk about leadership. They want to talk about things that are. And if you can ask people questions that are not um, that, that where you're attempting to get the soul of who they are, every one of these people want to engage in conversation. And I love that about about most of the conversations I was blessed to have. I tell you, that's. Just such a simple principle. It's 
you know, dad had, he coined that phrase, the, the be, do, and have philosophy. You've got to be before you can do, and you've got to do before you can have. And the surface questions are all about what do you do? Right. Yeah, the things that you did. But our soul responds to who we are. And so yep. I, I get that. I mean, it's what you just said is ask them who they are. Yep. Not, not what they did or accomplished, but who they are. It's their it's their values or their principles, their kids, the things they love the most. Yeah, and when you can start talking to people about their relationships, you know, when you can ask, I, I mean, Tom, I, I think when I, when I did that Success 2.0 session with you, I told the story of a young man named Warwick Dunn who was a running back in the NFL, and his mother was a police officer shot and killed in a robbery at a bank when he was 18. Um, he goes on into the NFL, begins a career – uh, as a first-round pick in the NFL, but he starts buying homes for women like his mom, right? Starts buying homes for single moms. And and years later, he wins the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award. The NFL awards him that honor, and he asked me to write his book. And as we're working on it, the discussion becomes, you know, what would you say to the man that killed your mom if you had a chance to meet him today? And you know what? That's the, that is that kind of question that gets to the soul of who he is, right? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the two of us ended up in a prison cell with a man that killed his mom. And I got to watch that conversation. And you know what? That's, that, is the, that is the opportunity we have um, if you're willing to not ask the, the, that easy top-line question. If you're willing to get to people's soul, you can get into those places. And you, when you do so, man, it is so rewarding. As we continue with Don, I want to again mention a sponsor of today's show, BarkBox. As I said, the Zigglers are huge dog lovers. BarkBox sent a box of goodies to Cindy Ziegler Oates, Zig's daughter, and Alexandra Ziegler, Tom's daughter, and of course, Zig's granddaughter. So here is what they had to say. Aunt Cindy, did Beecher get his BarkBox? He did, Alexandra, and he loved it. It's puptastic. Did Max get his BarkBox? He did. It was perfect. He went mutts when BarkBox arrived. You know, life can be rough, but this BarkBox sure brightened Max's day. I'm so glad. You know, when I first heard of BarkBox, I thought it was a little far-fetched. You know, too good to be true. Right? But BarkBox is awesome. It comes with treats and toys galore. And did I mention the treats are grain-free and gluten-free? A perfect snack to keep your pups healthy. Bon pet treat. BarkBox is possibly the best gift I could ever give to my dog. I agree. And BarkBox has themes depending on the seasons and holidays, so you and your pup can always celebrate the occasion. So you're telling me I can celebrate how Owen with my pup? Yes. And Christmas? Deck the paws. <laughs> Wow, I am positive that BarkBox is the best thing that has ever happened to dog kind. Aunt Cindy, I think BarkBox deserves an applause. Me too, Alexandra. So every month, BarkBox picks the best all-natural treats and innovative toys to match your dog's unique needs, including allergies and heavy chewer preferences. BarkBox is a great way to try a variety of treats and toys from local and small businesses that you may not otherwise be able to find. Each monthly box is themed with new and unique toys that continue to keep your dogs engaged, interested, and happy. So if your dog does not like something in the box, they'll send you something they'll love for free because they're all about dog happiness. So free shipping on any BarkBox within the continental U.S. And again, for a free extra month of BarkBox, visit BarkBox.com slash Ziggler when you subscribe to a 6- or 12-month plan. They'll give you an extra free month. BarkBox.com slash Ziggler. Well, on that aspect of so rewarding, and and in, as you talked about how significant and different the time with Zig was, as opposed to maybe a lot of the other people, not in the I'm not fishing for uh, applauding Zig. We, we we do that a lot here, um, but I understand him. I, I was with him as well, and wonder what is it when he talks about character and integrity and uh, authenticity. What was it in being with him? That was different, that did stand out to you, that touched you? You know, uh, what I think really stood out was um, for that window of time that I had with him, and it was not, you know, it was an hour, hour and a half, whatever it was, Mm -hmm. 
he made me feel important, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are a lot of people that we meet in life who want to remind you how important they are. And then there there are a few people that make you feel important. And, um, and that when, when I talk about that lunch, when I talk about that time with him, I think, you know, in that room, people were staring at our table, but they weren't staring at me, but Zig was staring at me and, um, he was engaged, he's fully engaged. As I was talking to him, he wasn't looking around the room. He was looking back at me and, uh, and that set a really high bar for me about how I want to be when I'm in rooms, uh, with other people. And, uh, it was a really powerful lesson. So on that note, your book, Great Team, 16 Things High-Performing Organizations Do Differently. I'm, uh, tell us about that as you've made that a focus in the book of, of the important or the value of making others feel important. Just that, that, that piece right there. Yeah, I, I will tell you. So the number one answer that comes up, and I'll, I'll share the story. Number one answer that comes up when these great team builders have shared with me how you build a sustainably successful organization is that you have to you have to be connected uh to your why you have to know what your purpose is and why what you do matters and uh and you have to know who it matters to right because that's that leads to the second piece of this is that the great teams uh have there's a feeling that flows through them that we are and we are out to do something special we are here um we are part of something unique and um and, and the story I tell in the book is about USA Basketball. And, and Tom, I shared this story with you, but it was about how, um, uh, how, you know, we're the dream team, right? In 1992, best collection of talent ever to play on one team together uh, in any sport, in my opinion. And they dominated their competition. And, uh, but they did so because they, they were committed to the cause, right? They wanted to restore world order, right? They wanted the world to know that when, when, when our best were there, the United States sent their best to, to the Olympics and they were fueled by a little nationalistic pride. No one was close and no one was close. A mere 10 years later, 2002, our, our national basketball team, the U.S. Olympic team playing in the world championships finished sixth. How do you go from dream team to sixth in the world in a decade? And how do you find your way back? Well, after that, after that debacle of a performance, USA Basketball ultimately turned the reins of the team over to Mike Krzyzewski at Duke. And I keep bringing him up. I think he's a special, an, an amazing coach. Uh, but Coach K, actually, um, he said he did what any great leader does in a, in a moment of transition. He went on a listening tour, right? He went to sit down with the different people who had been part of the organization uh, that he was now taking over. And what he learned was, he argues that you could take most every organization and and put it into, you could put almost everybody on your team into one of two pools. Uh, the the first pool is your uh, are your patriots, right? They're your people that believe in what you're doing. They they think what you're doing is important. And the second pool are your mercenaries. Right? They're the ones working for you until somebody offers them a dollar more. And he argued that we had too many mercenaries on that team, and we needed to restore a sense of pride and patriotism to being part of Team USA. And how do you do that? Well, what he did was he started creating what he called feel it moments where the team would feel who they were truly in service of and why it mattered. He started bringing in wounded warriors to sit down to talk to our players because he said, by the way, these guys also wear USA on the front of their chest. Today, they're your teammates, right? You represent them when you when you step on that court. You're not playing basketball. You're representing something. And he said the, the key was we wanted them not to think that they were playing for Team USA, but they were in service of Team USA. And all of this really kind of came to a head before the 2012 Olympics when the team was getting ready to head to London. He took our players to Arlington National Cemetery. He wanted them to feel the United States of America. And, and, and as they're walking through the cemetery, Martin Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, said, come with me. I'm going to take you to Section 60. And Section 60 are with the freshest graves at Arlington. And while they're there, they're standing there. Our players are walking by grave sites of people younger than them, right? They're seeing hometowns that they recognize. And and as they're standing there in this real moment of silence, Mike Krzyzewski notices a young man standing about 100 feet away 
he's got a crew cut. He's got a backpack slung over his shoulders. And he keeps reaching into the backpack and pulling out pictures and laying them down at grave sites. So Coach K walks over. And he says, excuse me, sir, I'm, I'm Mike Krzyzewski. I'm the head men's basketball coach for the United States Olympic team. And I'm wondering, could you tell me what you're doing here today? And the young man said, Coach, I, I know who you are. He said, this, this was my team. We had a mission and it didn't go as planned. And these are pictures of me and them in better days. And Mike Krzyzewski said, excuse me, is there any way you'd talk to my team? And he did. He walked over and he started talking to our players about what it means to be, to really believe in your teammate. What does it mean to be part of something special? Talked a little bit about survivor's guilt, how he wished he'd been there that day, and he wasn't. And then ultimately, he couldn't talk anymore, and he turned around, he walked away, crying. And after a couple of minutes, Mike Krzyzewski leaned in, and he said, that's why we came here today. Because I want you to feel what it means to represent the United States of America. And that team went to London, and they destroyed the world, as you might remember. I mean, they were amazing. Kevin Durant was was the breakout star of those games, and I sat down with him, talking to him about the, about that day at Arlington, and he, and I figured he was from Baltimore, so I figured he'd been there, and he said he had not, ever, and he said that day changed the way he will never put his jersey on the same way after that day, because being part of that team means something different. So the big question for us is, can we, as leaders, is can we figure out how to how to how to convey to the people that work with us? Who are we in service of and why does what we do matter? And if we can create those feel-it moments like Mike Krzyzewski does or as these great other team builders do, uh, how do we we – can, we can actually create within our team the ability to, to withstand unbelievable pain and, and to, uh, to sustain uh, unbelievable glory. And, um, and so uh, that's, that's a lesson that I, that, that I learned while, while working on this book that just stuck with me. Like if we can create those moments, if we can remember who we're truly in service of and why, how we, what we do changes lives in our community or wherever it is, right? It doesn't have to be the world. It, it would just, our, what are we doing in our community? If we can do that, we can, we can create a great team. You just hit on, of course, your pillar one in your book, targeting purpose. Number one, great teams understand their why. In show, in our show, number 397, a recent one, we interviewed Simon Sinek. Uh, I know. I love Simon. Yeah. Author of Start With Why. But you're talking about sports teams here. And I, at face value, of course, it's easy to think in regards to uh, what is a pro athlete's why, looking at the individual specifically, and even the team to a degree, that it's, it's the win. It's fame and money and, and fortune. But not always. Actually, seldom. I mean, that, seldom when that's the, what I wanted to ask you about. That, that, yeah. does it, that, that, may, that may get you through a game. Yep. That may get you through a season. That doesn't allow you to be sustainably successful for a career. The truly greats. You know, you sit down with a Derek Jeter, right? His why was he wanted always to be able to look at the guy in the stall next to him and know that if that guy looked him in the eye, he could never question whether Derek gave his very best that day, right? He may not, he may have struck out four times, but he brought his very best that day. And, and he knew that if he, if his teammate could look him in the eye and he couldn't look back, that, so his why wasn't about money or fame and all that came because every day he knew that he was doing the right thing to be successful. And by the way, this isn't just a sports thing. This is, this is the great corporate environments that I've had a chance to study. Uh, Medtronic, the, the medical device company in Minneapolis, Southwest Airlines there in Dallas, um, Tom, uh, you know, everyone, when they've allowed me to come sit in and, 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 and talk to their leaders and their leadership team, those are teams that understand why what their why their place in the market matters and why delivering on their promise is 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 something they that the marketplace requires of them and um and they know who it matters to like they don't just look they don't say we matter to the city of Dallas they can put a face on it and that's where that's where this becomes real for people is if they can it, you know Simon once said to me when he and I were talking about this a why is always personal and it's all it's always an act of service and it's all 
human on the other end of that act of service. And and too often we we think we're in service of, um, you know, some big industry or whatever it is. The, the further we get, the further we can put it, the closer we can come to putting a face on it, the more impactful that why is to our ability to sustain our success. So, so I, got, I got a question for you. I um, one of the things that I enjoy doing is I do a little bit of executive coaching, and I was working with a business owner, and I won't mention the type of business he had, but you know it's it's a, a mechanical type business, and they support office complexes and companies and things like that. And, and he said, "I got to get I got to get my people to connect. You know, I need to get the 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 why. What do we do?" And so this is what I this is what I advised him on. As I, as I said, I said, Alan, you're you're in the you're in the dream business. If if your team doesn't do the job, then those companies that you work for they shut down. Right. And that, and that means that hundreds of employees they don't get paid. And when they don't get paid, last time I checked, most dreams take time and money. I said so. The greatest way for you and your team to fulfill your own dreams is to help those people you serve fulfill theirs. Your dreams. Absolutely. So there's a, there's a zigism. Yeah. Add on to that. That's a, yeah, I rephrase that, but add on to that. No, I think you're, you're exactly right. And I think that's the challenge. So, so I, I had a, I, I used a, I talked about a company here, Medtronic a second ago there. So their longtime CEO, Bill George was a, has been a, has been a mentor of mine on this subject. And Bill George built this company. When he took the company over, it had 10,000 employees. When he when he left, it was 40,000. But they are one of the most purpose-driven organizations uh, on the planet. Almost everybody measures them that way. And I asked Bill George, how did you, how did you continue to bring that? How did you continue to build purpose into everything you do as you as you grew to that size? And he said, you know what? What we do every year, we have an event at the. Uh, it, it, it's usually the week after Thanksgiving. It's in our headquarters. We invite everybody to, to come. All the employees that want to arrive can. They can bring their families if they want to. But during that event, we block out an hour. And during that hour, we, we bring to the stage six families who are alive today. Who, one of their members of the family are alive today because a Medtronic device is keeping them alive. And he said, at some stage every year, a young woman steps to the front stage and she says to our employees, thank you. Because your device does what you promised it would, my daddy walked me down the aisle this summer, right? At some stage, some young man steps up and says, thank you. Because your device did what you promised, my grandfather was there with us at Thanksgiving and nobody expected it. And he said, our employees leave there understanding who we're really in service of and why what we do matters, right? And by the way, Medtronic doesn't sell to families. They sell to doctors and hospitals. So the family is their downstream customer. So as you, as your perfect example there, Tom, was it wasn't just about the building that these people work on, right, the buildings. It's the businesses and the people who work in those businesses and the families they support. The further you get down line, uh, downstream to think of how what you do impacts the lives of others, the more the better you feel about what you come to work every day to do. And if we can make that connection for our employees, even if it means maybe bringing in one of those business owners to say, by the way, I get the chance to, to, to employ, you know, uh, we, we, we employ six more people this year than we did last year. And we do so because the space you give us is so, you know, you, you keep us, you keep us in business every day. Thank you. Right. If if now your employees leave going, you're right, our job is we we're not we're not just fixing a pipe, right? We're keeping these guys, we're allowing him to employ more people, which is good for the community. It has I mean, the further down down the stream you can get in an understanding of your purpose, the better you are at bringing your why. That feels like a big deal. I mean, if you're talking, so to the business owners that are out there right now in this audience listening, they can take that, take that to heart, take action on that and start to implement that. Now, of course, we have a lot of people who are not that owner. They are an employee. And I think we're, most people are aware that in the corporate world today, there's an aspect and some, some uh, harsh realities to the fact that they're so removed from who is the end user 
And who is the end beneficiary of that? So when you talk about, well, you said right at the beginning here, you said why is always personal and is an act of service. service. Yeah. So it feels like, so for somebody sitting out there who may be removed, they've got some homework to do to help them out on how can they drill down to where they can find their why within an organization that may not be leading that from the top. Today's show is brought to you in part by Human Scale, who has what's been hailed as the best designed office product of the decade, QuickStand from Human Scale. If too much sitting is stagnating your energy at work or in your home office, then you got to try QuickStand. And a single smooth motion QuickStand lifts your monitor and keyboard higher, allowing you to transform your sitting desk into a standing one. It's the simplest, most elegantly designed way to transform your desk. So folks, I love to be active, but my work is 95% of the time writing, sitting at a desk, looking at a couple monitors. Even if I do a great workout during the day, then I spend the rest of the day totally sedentary and you just really cannot make up for that. So now I simply lift my computers and I stand. Standing helps me move more. I'm more prone to pacing when I think, or I'm on the phone, I'll squat down. I keep weights by my desk. I'll pick those up and use them. And when I tire of that, I'll just lower it down and sit again. So again, this will transform your energy level and your productivity. Try quick stand risk-free at quickstand.humanscale.com. Again, that's quickstand.humanscale.com. So I'm going to tell you, Kevin, I'll, I'll, I'll make this offer to you guys right now. I'll, I'll give you my email address, and if anybody listening to this podcast sends me an email, I actually have a series of questions you can ask within your team that can help you drill down into that discussion. Okay. Uh, you know, My email address is don, D-O-N, at team, like as in football team, 180.com. Somebody says, I heard you on uh, on the Ziegler podcast. I'd love that that drill down document. I will send it to them. Uh, we, we, we usually use that in part of our, our coaching program, but I'd be glad to give it to anybody that's listening today. Jeez. Thank you. I, uh, I'll take that back and, and add it into the intro as well. Uh, thank you. Yeah. I, I think it's a big, that's a big deal. Um, yeah, and it is. I mean, and, and, but, but to your point, yes, you might feel like, gosh, I'm too far down the ladder to have any impact on this discussion. That is not true, right? Uh, everyone, the, the, the true, the teams that are successful, that sense of why flows from the corner office to the front desk. And if you can't, if we're not all in connected, if we're not all connected there, um, then, then the why isn't anywhere near as valuable. If, it, if, if it's only the owner that can express it, that's not as it's not as you're not creating the great depth in your team that, that is capable for you. Have you had any experiences with the why within a team with that? Why germinating, not from the top, but from somebody as part of the team that they were able to come in and bring that value. Absolutely. So I actually, um, uh, Tom, almost like you, I had a, I had an, an opportunity where I, I was the keynote for a, for a, um, a truck rental company, right? Um, a large national truck rental company. They they do leasing of vehicles to small small and medium sized businesses. And uh, at the end of it, uh, a number of their employees wanted to talk further about how do we you know how do we be connected. And and that conversation ultimately led them. They they ended up doing a, a video series where they ended up sending a, a a camera to sit with some of their customers. Um, who are these small businesses who are now running a more efficient uh, operation because this company was making it available to them? And the, and the employees started realizing now it's not about just how many leases can I get signed every, every month. It's, it's, you know, if I do it right, I'm creating jobs, right, in my community. If I do it right, I'm putting safer vehicles on the road for, for these small businesses. They had to hear it, though, from their, empo- from their customers because you, you can't always hear that from your boss, mm. right? And, um, and, and these ideas of how to do all that really germinated up from, from the, from the field staff, um, who started thinking, who are we in service of and why does what we do matter? In preparing for the show, I asked you, how do you want to inspire the Ziegler audience? You said, I want the audience to realize that we can be part of a great team, but we have to study other great teams. Uh, Zig said often that success leaves clues. The work I've done is to uncover the clues of the greatest teams in our generation. So, I mean, the essence, if you want to succeed in an area, go study, go model success 
that somebody else is having in that area, which is not, uh, it seems like one of those things where we would say, gosh, that's not a super uncommon wisdom, but here you are hitting on it again, because I, I imagine you see this violated continually, even amongst top performers. Absolutely. Because we all, you know, uh, the study of, of other people who are successful requires work, right? We've got to get out. We've got to, or we've got to go find somebody who has studied that work, that work. And we've got to, we've got to invest in, in, in reading. And, and, uh, so I think it is, it's a weakness, right? Too often we think I've got to figure out the solutions myself. Mm-hmm. The truth is there are a lot of people out there who may not be in our industry, but who's, experience can inform what we're attempting to achieve and if you if you if we can go if we can commit ourselves to leaving this call this conversation willing to go out and study other high performers whatever it is um i think uh i think we'll all be better as a result (laughs) yeah kevin and and don i was just thinking that's what dad did he spent three hours a day studying high performers. I mean, he, he did all this research and his whole goal was to make it, he called it putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. He, he wanted to make it easy and he broke it down into the simple steps. I heard this uh, quote or, you know, we've heard this phrase before. Uh, if I can't, you can. Hey, look at me. I, I went through all this and I made it. If I can, you can. And then I heard somebody else say, yeah, that's easy to say, and that's not true. I can doesn't mean you can. I can means you can if you do what I did. Right. Right? Yep. And so what, what, did you have any like aha moments about how one of these leaders who created a high-performing team, they were doing it wrong, and then they learned something, and then they implemented it in the lights turned on or, or, or whatever, dessert something over. Cause I think that's the, that's the story that I get all the time is people come in with excuses or reasons of why, what the other people are doing won't work for them, but we know it will if they would do it. So what is that, that flip in the switch in the mind that says, just do it to get somebody to go do it. Yeah. I think, um, the first part of your question there, Tom, is that, you know, talking to, to some people, for example, I sat down with Pete Carroll, the, the coach of the Seattle Seahawks, right? And, and, and Carroll is t- today, there's almost, uh, Seattle is almost this, um, almost Mecca like space for other coaches to go visit because of the culture that he's created there for his organization, right? Other coaches want to go. I mean, I was there, uh, last fall, Steve Kerr from the Golden State Warriors was there. Uh, the San Diego Padres had didn't, been there the day before, and a group of high school coaches would come in the day after. I mean, coaches were coming there to watch not just his practices, but how his coaches interacted with his players, how his players interacted with each other, and why there was something special going on in Seattle. And there is, right? Um, and you don't even have to like them. And that's one of the things that's really unique about this, right, is that uh, you know, a lot of people go, oh, I hate that team. Well, it doesn't mean we can't learn from them, right? And uh, so you, what, but what I saw in Seattle was that they have, a, they have a huge focus in changing the way the conversation happens, right? Most times we, somebody screws up in your organization, you call them in, you bless them out, and you are, you know, what were you thinking, Right? Well, in Seattle, they realize that nobody comes to work wanting to be bad, right? No wide receiver runs a route to drop a pass. No quarterback attempts to throw interceptions, right? That just doesn't happen. So bringing them to the sideline to say, what were you thinking? You know, what kind of an idiot move are you making there? What, what, you know, instead of having that aggressive, um, I'm here to pound you, uh, discussion. They changed the way they they changed the conversation, and what I started to realize is that this is true of almost of many of the great team leaders I've had a chance. They started asking more questions um, uh, of of that. They they started having when when you came to the sidelines, it wasn't about how did you drop why did you drop that pass right. That's a stupid question. It was hey, do you remember this morning in uh, when we were in the film room, right? And we talked about how on your third step, you jab right, cut left, extend your right arm further than your left arm so that you can cradle the ball. Now, 
do you remember that from this morning? Yeah, I do, Coach. Now, was that what you did today? No, that's not what I did. Now, let's let's make sure that when we go out again, we're worth. So instead of instead of that hyper aggressive, which we see so many coaches, so many Bobby Knights and the other people of 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 our generation who have kind of played through that, they changed and they had to have this aha moment. Pete Carroll used to be a yell in your face guy, and he realized that that no longer worked with the with the employees he was getting right the people he was drafting he had to change himself because and so he went in study of other people now they're in study of him and so it's this really awesome discussion about you know how there was a there was a moment for him when he realized i was no longer connecting with my players i need to be different um you know but then you've got you for a lot of these people they have to learn something new when that moment strikes them Okay, so I'm intrigued on that. You said changing the conversation, but what I heard in that from your example was changing the conversation of a failure. So why did you drop that pass? And instead, you, you showed us there. Now, uh, Don, that's, that's uh, admittedly a lot of my self-talk. I expect a lot from myself, and when something goes wrong, it's Kevin. Why did you drop that pass? Talk to us about changing the conversation individually with an area like this. Yeah, I had a um, an amazing conversation with Sue Inquist, who is the uh, the women's she was the women's softball coach at UCLA, won eleven national championships, right? And she's a huge proponent of getting into conversations with her players about how you talk to yourself. And she asks her players all the time, um, you know, do you talk to yourself like you talk to your teammate? Right? Your teammate drops a pass. Hmm. Do you look at your teammate and go, "What an idiot! Why did you drop that pass?" No, of course you don't. You pat him on the back and you say, you know what, another pass is coming. You're going to get another shot and you'll be better next time. Wow. But we don't talk that way to ourselves. And so, so she actually started every day asking her players, remember, talk to yourself like you talk to your teammate. Talk to yourself like you talk to your teammate because if you can do that, we're more encouraging because we are encouraging generally of other people, right? Uh, there are those few bitter souls out there that, that, that probably aren't listening to this podcast anyway. <laughs> but but most people that are that are in the development of themselves or their team um, speak encouragingly to other people. Do the same when you speak to yourself. Man, that, that's huge. Yeah, if I talked to myself like I do my employees or my kids, it would be a much different conversation. I don't know. There are days that I don't talk to my kids that well. Well, I was trying to look on the bright side with my <laughs> talking to my kids. Absolutely. You're clearly raising better children than I, but that's good. <laughs> it's because he has like 20. <laughs> yeah. On any given day, I, I may fail with some, but I'm going to get it right with somebody. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, okay, so I want to go back to both, both of you really in talking about studying success and looking at what works. I, in my own work, helping people pursue something bigger, their personal development, business development – especially on a business standpoint, we'll see people who are pursuing an idea. They're going out, they're looking and they do find success in that area. And it scares them because they think, okay, the space is filled. Well, shoot, that's what I wanted to do. They're doing it. And it's often a threat. Can you speak to that? Tom, go first. Sure. I'll I'll go first. And and, um, I actually, when I get that type of a question is I change the context. I change the, the why, the focus. Uh, people have this worldly definition of success. And that success is measured by what you did five minutes ago. Success is the way others perceive who you are, not who you are. You know, it's perception. It's not reality. Success is what I have and what I do, not who I am. And so I moved the conversation over to significance and this is, this is where my heart is, and, I, and I'll just give a, uh, an example. If somebody says they come in and they say, you know, I, I want to I achieve more in my business. I, wanna, I, wanna, I want a higher level of success, and we'll just call it sales. So well, why do you want that? And I said, well, if I have more success, I'll make more money. Well, why do you want that money? Well, if I have more success and more money, I'll have security and job growth and everything else will and that'll give me more money. Why do you want more money? Well, then I can pay off all my debts. Okay, well, why do you want to pay off your debts? Well, I'll have money. I'll be debt-free. I'll be able to build that lake house. Well, why do you want that lake house? Well, that's when my grandkids will come to play with me. So now it's all of a sudden real personal. 
And it's not about doing well on the job anymore. It's about having this place at the lake house where my grandkids can come. But it's still a success question. There's one more question that needs to be asked, and that's the significance question. Why do you want to play with your kids at the lake house? So I can build a relationship with them and teach them the principles and the values and God's wisdom so that they will make good decisions in life and so that our time together will ripple through eternity, through legacy. And people get so focused in today's world about, you know, this award and, and that level and, you know, this car and that suit that they forget that eternity ripples through the relationships that we create. And success comes out of the right relationships. And that's the, the golden thread that I see through this book is that they're making it personal. They're making it real. The why, everything, relationships they have with each other. That is powerful. I don't know that I could do any better than that, but uh, I will. I will tell you. You know, as you said that, Tom, I, I was thinking about um, uh, somebody that you and I both have great respect for, John Wooden, um, and the uh, I had the opportunity to work with Coach Wooden for twelve years. Uh, he was my mentor. Every other month, I flew to California uh, for a day with Coach, and um, uh, Coach talked all the time about you know the the misplaced. Uh, definition of success, you know, that, that everybody thinks of success, as you said, of as, as the accumulation of things or, or achievement or awards or whatever it might be, titles. But the truly great ones understand that success is about, uh, you know, the, the, the comfort that comes from knowing that I gave you my very best today. Um, and only you know if you gave your very best, right? Did I bring it? Did I bring my best? If I did, it may not show up in the scoreboard today. It will show up in the scoreboard over a lifetime if you bring your very best every day. Wow. Well, okay. There, there. On that note, right there, I want to speak to I want you to speak to business owners and individuals alike. Someone said in a testimony about you, they said, "What Don does is bring the greatness in sports uh, to life." And we use, we, you know, in life, we do use sports analogies so much. I own, aside from the sports aspect, some of the, my favorite inspirational movies, of course, are, are on sports. Um, I, I was a pro cyclist in a past life, and I realized the glory as it's maybe the most raw place just to put yourself on the line and, and go for it. And so in reading through your book and working on this show, Don, it really kind of hit me. And, and I want to ask you to, to dive into it a little bit more. And maybe our love of sports is because it's the one place where we not only allow and accept, but we glorify and applaud failure, which we don't do in our normal lives. I mean, we love even the epic success, you know, where somebody put out 110% effort, even though it didn't work out, man, we're up in the stadium and we're cheering for them. And, you know, I grew up in the NFL and I'm thinking, you know, the average game, what is it? And I'm making this up 95% failure and 5% success, you know, if that, and we're all okay with that. But in real life on our couches, we live as if we want and expect and must have a hundred percent success rate in our daily lives, our income and savings and retirement are all numbers that we're supposed to continually be on the rise, right? We're not look, we're not, we're not okay with a dip. Our house size increases. We get later model, nicer cars. We have more and nicer amenities, bigger and grander vacations, more time. Uh, we in no way expect to have a failure. We pattern our lives to, to, to work and be safe and are seldom found just going for the gusto. So on that, how do we as civilians and spectators who love this embody more of that going for it and the acceptance of, in, in essence, failure and, and getting ourselves to live out the big game? Well, I do think – I mean you hit on it right there. It's a, it is about recognizing that the things that we uh, the celebrate um, don't occur if, if risk isn't taken, you know, thoughtful risk, and if, if failure is not an option, right? I mean failure um, – uh, I, I, I had the opportunity just a couple of weeks ago to be in New York with Joe Torre, and we were talking about you know, the longtime manager of the Yankees. And, and, he, and he said you know, the reason that he loves using baseball analogies is not just because he was a manager and a player there because he thinks baseball is life, right? It's a grind. Uh, there's 162 games. It's difficult. You're, you're playing every day. And the truth is it's a failure sport, right? If you're, if you're successful one out of every three times you are up to bat, you're, you're in the Hall of Fame, um, and, yeah. uh, which means two out of three times you're, you're, you're failing. And so uh, what we, I think what we grow to appreciate when we, uh, when we 
truly get to understand and and, and watch uh, and, and maybe invest ourselves in learning about sports and sports figures is that is that they really are um you know you ask that question do they levitate you know when you're in the room with them no they're, they're very much like us they just they just maybe were a little more driven in some places and 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 most of them would tell you it wasn't what allowed them to be successful was seldom their physical gift. Uh, almost all of them can point to somebody who was bigger, stricker, bigger stronger, faster um, at, at anything they did. But what they allowed themselves to do was, was mentally, spiritually, and emotionally discipline themselves in ways that others don't. And um, uh, so I, I think that that's, that's why these analogies work you know um, I, there every once in a while i get people roll their eyes oh i hate sports analogies i'm so over them you know i, I don't understand I, I i get it i'm a sports guy so you can you can say but i think they really are as close um a uh, a, a model for us as uh, as anything else out there when we try to say here's how we want to build a great individual my, my skill set and here's how we want to build a great team yeah, you saying that, it makes me think of we're drawn to it because it's what we are ultimately hardwired for. And we see the, I think, the, the ramifications of not living that out. Uh, and it's, it's, it's horrendous and not having that pur- purpose. I, I do want to pull out what you, I wrote it down, that you said uh, you don't get to celebrate if risk isn't taken and failure is not an option and then that those people that we see and we put on a pedestal, they're like us, maybe just a little more driven. That feels doable. Absolutely. And I think, I think that's the thing, again, uh, in the other presentation that I do about individual uh, high performance, I have this line where I say, you know, greatness, if you really talk to these amazing champions, they'll tell you that it's available to all of us if you're willing to do common things uncommonly well. That that's what most of the very best that I've worked with have shared with me was a driver in their success, was a willingness to, to make that one more phone call than, than everybody else makes, right? To make that, uh, that one more, uh, to stop by that one more office on, the, on, on a sales effort than, than, than most people do. If you're willing to do, and that's a very common thing, right? Making that phone call is quite common, but you're doing, them uncommonly, you're doing it at an uncommon rate or an uncommonly well, in an uncommonly well fashion, you'll achieve greatness in your space. All right. Well, I'm going to wrap us up and bring us back to the beginning of the show that you said. We're going to talk about Snoop Dogg again. <laughs> yeah. Give us some dish on Snoop. Um, no, that's... I was going to ask Tom to give me his favorite Snoop Dogg lyric, but I'm going <laughs> to. Uh, no, I'm... he's Googling right now. I'm going to pause for that. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to legitimately say, I don't know one of his lyrics. <laughs> oh my goodness. And I apologize if I should. <laughs> no, what I what I want to know right now, Tom, is if I walked him over, would you stick your hand out and say, "Pleasure to meet you, Mister Dog"? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's just beautiful. That's beautiful. All right, no, 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 not not quite that far back. The why? So the why? You said it's personal and it's in service to others. So tell us the uh, writing a book's a hard work. What's the personal your personal why for this book? Uh, it's it's interesting. My personal why is uh, I, I satisfy my own uh, insatiable appetite for learning um, by by going out and asking these questions. Uh, and then, oh, by the way, I get paid because I get to share them with other people. Mm-hmm. So my why is that I want to know these things, um, and uh, and and I believe that if I can if I can write books uh, about topics that will inspire me to be better i believe that at the end of the day um the opportunity for other people to 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 learn and share and grow with them will uh, will allow them to be better as well thank and you by the way, kevin and tom i'm going to share this with you now i just got an email uh from the publisher uh they're sending five copies of the book to you all to to distribute to um if you've got any any way of distributing books to those in your listening audience um, if they send a, send something to you or, or however you want to do it, there'll be some books for you to be able to give away uh, for those who are listening today. Uh, thank you. Uh, I was going to ask. I have an electronic copy, and I wanted I wanted the uh, brick and mortar. So thank you. And Tom, it sounds like a good opportunity for us to do a uh, do an offering, do a do a contest, and and get some of these books in people's hands. Some of the listeners. 
Absolutely. That'll be awesome. Thank you so much. That's great. Thank you for that. And thank you for your time today. I do want to folks pull you back to a little bit ago in the podcast when I asked about the the questions of finding your why, whatever type of work, employment, vocation uh, that you're involved in and Don's offer that he'll send you a series of questions to help work through that. If you will email him at Don at team 180.com. Uh, thank you. Incredibly generous. I'll do that myself as soon as we're done here, Don, but thank you for your, your time, your heart, uh, your stories for doing what you're doing. This will bless folks dramatically. Again, the book is great team, 16 things, high performing organizations do differently. Uh, Don, thank you guys. I appreciate it so much, Tom. I appreciate your family's love for all the rest of us. And I'm, I'm grateful to have spent this hour with you. It's been a blessing having you here, Don. We'll have to have you back. Absolutely. That's a date. (laughs) Folks, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with you inspiring your true performance in the next show. 